Congress in flux and Trump's influence in question. Definitely not a Republican wave, that's for darn sure. Control of Congress hangs in the balance as a number of key races are still being decided. Donald Trump gives us problems politically. For Republicans, the finger pointing begins as the red wave falls flat and some openly criticize former President Trump. Tuesday was a good day for America, a good day for democracy, and it was a strong night for Democrats. Meanwhile, President Biden celebrates better than expected election results after Democrats defy history. Plus, we will never ever surrender to the woke mob. Florida is where woke goes to die. We will make Michigan a leader, a place where every person is respected and protected under the law. A look at some of the winners this week and what lies ahead for 2024. Next. This is Washington Week. Good evening and welcome to a special edition of Washington Week. It's been a wild, wild midterm cycle. Election Day has stretched into Election Week. And at this hour, it's still unclear which party will control the House or the Senate. In several key races, votes are still being counted. Some of those results could take weeks. That's right, weeks. Currently, Republicans are expected to hold a slim majority in the House, 28 races are still undecided. In the Senate, three races are still undecided. And next month, the high-profile Georgia Senate race between Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock and Republican Herschel Walker will go to a runoff. That race could end up determining which party controls the Senate. And while there is a lot of uncertainty, what is clear is that the Republican red wave it simply did not happen. Many of former President Trump's highest profile endorsements ultimately lost their races. That's led some in the GOP to question whether Trump is a drag on the party while still celebrating party wins. Meanwhile, Democrats, including the president, are praising the results. Two years ago, when I became leader, Republicans had less than 200 seats in the House. That cycle, we picked up 14 seats. Tonight... We built upon those gains two years ago, and it is clear that we are going to take the House back. We lost fewer seats in the House of Representatives than any Democratic president's first elected midterm, at least 40 years. And experts said we couldn't beat the odds, but we did beat the odds. Joining me to discuss all this and more, Dan Balls, chief correspondent at The Washington Post, Lisa Zhang, senior White House correspondent for CBS News. Jonathan Martin, we call him J-Mart, politics bureau <laughs> chief at Politico. And Aisha Rasko, host of Weekend Edition Sunday on NPR. Thanks, all of you, for being here around the table. Love to have everyone here. Dan, you have covered politics longer than all of us, so I'm going to start with you. This was the red wave that was it. Um, the GOP, even if they take back the House, it, this could be the best midterm election of any president, um, at least in the last two decades. What's your biggest takeaways from what this election tells us and the lessons here? Well, you know, it, having covered a lot of these election nights, this was one of the most astonishing, certainly for a midterm, because it defied almost all the elements of history that we use as guides to let us give a sense of where things are going. I, I think one of the big takeaways is that Donald Trump has created a different electorate in this country. 2018, we had record turnout. In 2020, we had record turnout. And in 2022, we had near record turnout. Normally, the party that holds the White House has trouble getting its voters out. 
in a midterm election like this. Mm -hmm. But in this case, they came in droves and it defied the expectations. And so as a result of that, you have the party that may well capture control of the House disappointed and fighting among themselves and the party that could lose the House quite jubilant uh, that they're as close as they are. The Senate's still up for grabs. It's very possible, maybe even likely at this point, that the, that the Democrats hold that. So um, it's, it's just a year in which uh, it really was a choice and not a referendum on the party in power. And Jonathan, J. Mart, um, there are a number of races that are, we said are, are still not likely to be right. called, but there's Nevada and, yes. and, and Arizona that are those key Senate races. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about what you're thinking and seeing, both on the House side, but also yeah. on the Senate side in terms of where things are heading. Well, I think we're coming on the air tonight, and your viewers should know that there have just been thousands of votes counted uh, in Nevada, and it looks increasingly like Senator Masto, who's the incumbent Democrat there, uh, is probably going to find a path to re-election. Um, she's only down uh, under 1,000 votes now statewide, and there are still 40,000 more votes to come just from Las Vegas and Reno alone, those metro areas. So she appears to be on track. That's important because if she does um, close that gap and overtake her GOP challenger, that all but guarantees Democrats will hold the Senate because Mark Kelly in Arizona is even better, uh, in even better shape right now than her. And you mean, that would make Georgia for those watching at home, uh, only relevant as whether uh, the Dems would have uh, a, a one-seat majority or a zero-seat majority with the VP breaking the tie. So Nevada is the key, and tonight it looks like Masto is going to be able to hold on. And there's a lot going on on the House side, too. Yeah, absolutely. And what's fascinating about the House is that there's drama in terms of both uh, sides of the aisle in terms of who's going to be in charge. You know, usually uh, after a House election, at least one party, we know who's going to be leading uh, that caucus. We, we're, it's now uncertain certain as whether Speaker Pelosi, if Democrats do go into the minority, whether or not she would stay, uh, resign, or perhaps stay and serve in the minority, um, or perhaps, you know, stay and try to serve as minority leader. So she has three options, basically, uh, uh, that are sort of fascinating to watch. There's intense uh, hope among a lot of younger Democrats in the House that there's going to be a passing of the baton to that next generation. But they weren't expecting this election to be so close. And now Pelosi, uh, I think it's more of an open question as to whether or not she will move on. It's a mess with the House GOP because of the opposite. They had high hopes for, the, for this election. And now it seems like if they do have the majority in each, it's only going to be a three or four seat uh, majority, which is so darn close. It could be even closer than that. And so if that's the case, Kevin McCarthy's going to have a really hard time finding the votes to become speaker because he has critics uh, on the far right of his caucus that are not going to vote for him for speaker. That could create an extraordinary story on the floor of the House in January because you have to get 218 votes on the floor of the House to be speaker. And if he can't find his entire party unified, those Democrats sure aren't going to bail him out. No, those Democrats are no. definitely not going to bail him out. Ouija, um, one of the happiest people I'm seeing this week is, <laughs> is on your beat. President Biden is chipper, I think. Mm -hmm. um, tell me what, what you're hearing at the White House behind closed doors, what they're saying, and what also they think this says about the message that, the, that Democrats were putting out there that really was also about democracy and threats, inflation and abortion. It was sort of a trifecta. Some people saw that as sort of messy, but it worked in some ways. Right. And it is not in this administration's DNA to gloat and to say, I told you so, but basically 
behind the scenes that are saying, I told you so, because there was so much criticism against their strategy um, to focus on a variety of issues and not just the economy. In fact, the president's last primetime address was about the threat to democracy. Um, and he made that just a few days before Election Day. And a lot of Republicans said, you know, this shows that he is out of touch because people are really just so stressed about paying their bills that, you know, he's choosing to focus on something that is not what is top of mind for people. But we just saw that's not true. Abortion was a factor. Yes, the economy was a factor. The threat to democracy was a factor. And so that is what we heard from the White House from the very beginning, that they were going to focus on these issues and on the president's accomplishments because they wanted this to be a policy-driven campaign, not a personality-driven campaign, which is why the president did not do a lot of the big um, campaign rallies that previous presidents had done until the very end when he wanted to make sure to uh, drum up enthusiasm to get people out to vote. And to Jonathan's point, the other reason why he's very happy is even though Republicans look like they're poised to take over, the White House feels that there's enough wiggle room, there's enough fractures within the party that they will still be able to um, accomplish things on his agenda. It's going to be tough, they acknowledge that, but they are certainly much more optimistic than they would have been if that so-called red wave had had uh, happened. Yeah, and, and Aisha, um we just talking about sort of personality not being at the forefront there. And I think that that's very much true. And that's what I'm hearing from my sources. But there's also this idea that candidates do matter in some ways. How much did candidate quality matter when you look at these election results, especially even in a place like Pennsylvania, where mm -hmm. John Fetterman yeah. bested out Dr. Oz, who was yeah. this Trump backed candidate that some just saw as simply unqualified? Well, here's the thing. I mean, I think this election was a real test of whether races had been nationalized to the point and whether the electorate was so polarized that basically if you had an R and you were a Republican, they would vote for you. If you were a Democrat, they would vote for you. I think what this shows is it matters who you are because you saw those split tickets. You saw in Georgia where you had Governor Kemp get reelected, right? But then you have Herschel Walker. They, there were people that voted for Kemp. They did not vote for Walker. Right? They did not. And then you see in Pennsylvania where you had Oz, you had someone where, you know, Trump put that thumb on the scale and you got Oz, but people didn't glean to him. People felt like he was a carpetbagger. He didn't have, he was kind of a snake oil salesman. That's what people felt. I'm not saying that's who he is, but that's the way people felt. And that's what happened when it came to, and you saw the results of that. And it really hurt the Republicans. Certainly. Certainly. And, and Dan, um, you're also hearing some in the GOP say now out loud their criticisms of Trump. Some of the things that people would only say on background are now somehow materializing on, on national news. And for me, it strikes me that the Capitol attack, you saw people run from Trump and run right back. I wonder how much you think people are going to run from Trump and run right back, or if this is really a, a, a real sort of um, test of, or, and a real sort of, uh, a real sort of example of people saying, you know, this is the limit for us. It, it may be an inflection point for, for Donald Trump. Uh, we've, we've said that a lot of times over the last <laughs> six years, and, and, uh, and I would say almost every time or every time we've been proven wrong. So I don't want to go too far out on that limb. Uh, but there is something materially different about this. I think after 2020 um, and after the attack on the Capitol, uh, despite the attack on the Capitol, I think Republicans felt that they could not win, and they could not win this year, uh, without Trump being in the tent and part of it, that they needed, mm -hmm. uh, they needed his voters. But in getting those voters, they also got Donald Trump meddling in these elections. And to, you know, to, to the look at the Senate, you could argue that uh, had they had different candidates in Georgia and in Pennsylvania, 
they would have won those two races, right. and in which case they would they would have the Senate. So I think that the the issue now is, uh, will they conclude from this that instead of thinking they can't win? Uh, without Trump, that now they can't win with him. That's exactly what I was going to say. It's because for the past two years, the open-ended question that we've talked about so much is what power does Trump still have within the GOP? And I think a lot of candidates were concerned that remained a lot of power. And now they see the results, and that is just not the case, because those candidates who he endorsed actually underperformed. Um, on the flip side, you know, the president was trying to avoid areas where there were really tight races, President Biden, that is. And it turns out that the places where he did go, those candidates overperformed. Mm. And so you're right, Dan. I think now the question, it was always how much can Trump still help a candidate? Now it's how much can he hurt them? Yeah. And as we discuss, um, I'm going to go to Jay Martin yeah. in a minute because my question's for you. Yeah. But as we discuss the midterm week that was, we also have to, of course, look at 2024. I know your head's spinning at home, but we have to do it. <laughs> Former President Trump is widely expected to announce another run for the White House next week. And President Biden has also said he signaled at least that he's intending to run, but has left the door open that he perhaps may not. He's saying it's going to be a family decision. So there are a lot of questions swirling really within both parties about the yeah. future. And Jamar, you're about to jump in. I want to come straight to you. You're, yeah. You told our producers I have a lot to say about 2024. <laughs> so I'm just going to let you take it away. Well, I can't recall a moment in American politics where the two ostensible front runners of, of their parties uh, had so many people in those parties dreading their their, their their candidacies. I think on the Republican side, it's self-evident, there's a, a ton of people who are ready to move on from Trump. With Democrats, it's a little more complicated because the, the, there's, I think, certainly support for, for, for Biden and, and certainly a great deal of goodwill for him. It's just that there is a feeling, I think, among a lot of Democrats that it's time to move on, that he served the purpose of getting Trump out of the White House. But he'll be uh, 82 years old uh, in 2024, and perhaps this thinking goes, it's, it's time to get somebody of the next generation to run. The exit polls the other night that we all saw uh, show, you know, overwhelmingly most Americans want uh, Biden to, to hang it up in 24. He doesn't seem quite ready to do that, at least as you of right say. now. Yeah. Watch me. It's hard. <laughs> Look, it's hard for politicians to walk away. Like, it's hard for uh, athletes to walk away, yeah. right? He has that competitive gene in him, and I think it's going to be difficult. I would just say real fast on Trump. I think what's happening now is this is a conversation that was deferred from 2020, because of what happened in the aftermath of 20 and Trump's denialism about the election, this should have been happening then, because at that point, his party had lost the House, the Senate, and the White House on his watch. But he basically uh, paralyzed, he froze that conversation yeah. in 20 because he was so fixated on saying the election was stolen, and he's now put off uh, to today that conversation. And the last thing I'll say is the GOP can tolerate a lot from Trump, a whole lot. What they can't tolerate is losing. Yeah, and, and I think that a, could ultimately that is be, lesson. ironically, with Donald Trump, the, the biggest winner, he, uh, he claims, his ultimate Achilles heel could be that he's actually a loser. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That could that could <laughs> that, be it. That. <laughs> Aisha, um, abortion was also a big part of this, uh, of, of this midterm cycle. We saw in nationally that it was the most important issue to voters um, under, at, only after inflation, based on some exit polling from NBC News. I wonder what you make of the abortion victories. We saw five states voting on abortion-related measures, and all five states, including Kentucky, mm -hmm. every single vote went for people who are supportive of abortion rights. What does that say? Well, I mean, it says that this is an issue that um, the 
a majority of Americans support some form of abortion rights. Like, yes, they may not support, you know, total abortion rights or may support some limits, but they do not want abortion to be outlawed. And that is clear when you look at all of these races over and over again. And I think that really, you know, some in the media, let's take, let's take some blame for that, underestimated how much of a role that would play. It, it was clear after Dobbs that there was some momentum. I think the thought was that that momentum had stalled, but clearly that's not the case, and that in places like Pennsylvania or other places where there was a real fear that you could have a rollback of abortion rights, you saw Democrats, you saw independents go to Democrats because they did not want abortion rights to be taken off, off the table. Yeah, and another big thing, that we, Dan, we've been talking about this, is the, the threats to democracy. Weijia was talking about it in terms of um, the president's speech and the decision to focus on that. But there was something that's interesting that I've been thinking about is there are some Democrats who people are saying meddled in the elections by supporting election deniers, mm -hmm. and people were worried that that was a risk. But it turns out that all of those election deniers that were backed by Democrats, where Democrats spent millions of dollars, they lost. What, what do you make of the implications of that? Is there a danger there? Well, there is a danger there. Um, and I think that there's, you know, there's a debate within the Democratic Party and, and more broadly than that about whether, mm -hmm. even if it is successful, whether that is the right thing to do in politics, whether you should, whether you should raise up people uh, who would, in fact, threaten uh, the, the, the state of democracy. Uh, so that remains an open question, but as a political tactic, it, it was successful. Now, um, you know, would it have been, you know, any less successful if they hadn't gotten involved? Perhaps not. So I think that's that's an open question. I, I want to go back on the abortion issue for yeah. a minute um, because um, I, I agree with you. I think at the end of the campaign, there was this kind of this sense that it had faded, and, and yet, and and I, you know, I'm, I'm as guilty of that as anybody else because we saw how important inflation and mm -hmm. gas prices mm -hmm. and and sensitive issues were to to people. Um, but I remember conversations I had with, with voters uh, in, in August, with women voters, suburban women voters, um, and they were, they were so passionate at that point. They were passionate about the abortion issue. They were passionate about democracy. And I think that when you look at what was going through their minds, there was something visceral about those issues. And, and when there's an issue that is that powerful, mm -hmm. that doesn't fade away. And I think it's easy for us to sort of look at a poll and say, oh, it's not as important as it was. In, in the way people think, they don't think about issues in quite that way. They don't think of them in a poll way. And so I think that, that ended up being so powerful in the outcome of this election. And just really quickly, I mean, I think that those two, so you have two things. You have abortion, which Republicans don't have much room to move and maneuver on at all. And then you have Trump who is not gonna give them room to maneuver. So those are two things that are gonna really be hanging over Republicans when it comes to 2024. Like, what are you gonna do on abortion where there's really no room to negotiate and Trump is not gonna allow them to negotiate? Well, the other aspect of it is that, that uh, on the issue of democracy, for a while one could say, well, this is Trump's problem. But over a two-year period, it became the Republican brand. Mm -hmm. And, and that, yeah. that caused people to have a great... Pause. And I think that's the key point. That's the overarching, I think, uh, point about this election. Um, my co-author, Alex Burns, and I wrote a book called This Will Not Pass. And I think the good news uh, and the bad news for Democrats is 
that Trumpism will not pass. I think it's bad news for Democrats because Biden's hope was that the fever would break after he took office, that the Trump era would end. Well, it, it obviously hasn't. The good news for Democrats is because it hasn't faded, their voters are still really engaged and extremely tuned in. And yes, independents who can flip either side are still voting for Democrats because they still you know, are afraid of Trumpism and they still want to reject it. Just because Trump is not in the Oval Office anymore doesn't mean that that issue is not animating. And I think that's what the big story of this election. Well, yeah, I, think, I think that Trumpism and Trump are two different things Absolutely, now. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, now we're in a situation where Republicans are asking who is the person who can, um, you know, still provide Trumpism, still, you know, give voters what they want in that sense. That's not Donald Trump. <laughs> yeah. And so, you and, know. And in talking about that and thinking about that, I was going to ask you about Michigan. I know you're at the White House, but Michigan saw these huge wins because they have, for the first time in 40 years, Michiganders are going to have a Democrat-controlled um, legislature and a governor's right. mansion. And that message was all about really anti-Trump and also all about making sure that women's rights were going to be protected, LGBTQ rights. I sat down one-on-one -on -one with the governor of Michigan who said, we're ready for this fight nationally. I wonder what you make of sort of the, the people that are coming up, maybe some of the, the names that we're seeing, Governor Whitmer, Gretchen Whitmer being one of them as being people who are ready to say, I'm going to fight for Trumpism here, Alicia? Well, I mean, I think that that was brewing. I mean, look at what happened to her in particular, right? And so I think that we should expect to see much more of that. I mean, I think people are less afraid now to really confront it um, because they see that if you do, that doesn't mean it's not going to cost you. Yeah. I mean, it, that means, you know, it could actually help you. And so um, from that sense, I think that, you know, it's it's not necessarily surprising. But um, it, you know, of course, the outcome is is remarkable. I have to ask you about Sean Patrick Mahoney, Maloney, Maloney yeah. um, because, Jay Mark, you were, I, I, I want to sure. ask you about this because he lost his race even sure. though Democrats are doing well. What's that say? Well, he had this Hudson Valley district in New York State. I think, um, ironically, because it's seen nationally as this bastion of liberalism, Democrats actually had a really rough go this year in New York, in part because of what was happening in the race for governor, where you had the Democratic incumbent who was an appointed a person, not appointed, but someone who, uh, who had taken office when Cuomo quit, and uh, who was fairly weak comparatively to that state's politics. And I think that helped down ballot and it hurt Democratic incumbents like Sean Patrick Maloney. Um, and I think if Democrats do, in fact, lose the House, it'll be almost entirely because of their losses, ironically enough, in, yes, New York State. But to uh, go to your point earlier about, I think what Tuesday night also offered us, Yamish, is a glimpse of, in both parties, the next generation. Yeah. Uh, I think certainly on the Republican side, talking about you know, folks like Ron DeSantis, but don't forget these Democrats who were elected Tuesday too. Gretchen Whitmer, yeah. overwhelmingly reelected. Mm -hmm. If you win Michigan twice as a Democrat like that, boy, you are gonna be in Ten the national points. conversation yeah. immediately, and she certainly is. But don't forget Josh Shapiro in Pennsylvania, yeah. who helped Fetterman a great deal on top of the ticket, yeah. uh, Wes Moore in Maryland, and Mara Healy in Massachusetts. All these new Democrats are gonna be born on Tuesday. Well, Aisha, I want to ask you about a Democrat that has an uncertain future right now, which is Stacey Abrams. Um, she lost, uh, and there are a lot of people who are saying, this is maybe what black women, and I'm hearing this from, from experts, this is sort of what black women do. They they work hard. That Georgia, she was able to mobilize. Georgia's kind of purple because of, some people say, because of the of, of the work that she did. But she, she lost her race. But she lost her race. And I mean, you do hear from some black women, it, it has been reported, about the disappointment and the frustration of her 
you know, coming forward, doing all this hard work, but not really seeing the fruits of that, not for herself. And I think that is a, it is a tough loss. But I don't think that Stacey Abrams, I don't think we need to count her out. I think that she will find a path for herself, whatever that may be. She is a political talent, my goodness. And so I think that the Democrats can find something for Stacey Abrams. It's just not clear what it will be. And in the last 10 seconds here, Weijia, how long can Biden sort of hold off on 2024 if we end up seeing <laughs> Biden time. a Republican. Biden time. He, he says he's in no rush. Um, the party, I'm sure, is in a rush, right? Because the 2024 has already started. Yeah. So um, he said he's going to take some time over the holidays. It's going to be a family decision. And perhaps in the new year, um, he, he will make an announcement. But not yet. Not yet, but you're going to be asking him, I'm sure, right? <laughs> Every chance. Every chance. <laughs> well, we'll have to leave it there tonight. Thank you so much to our panel for your reporting. And for, and for you all at home, thank you so much for joining us. And don't forget to tune in Saturday to PBS News Weekend. Anchor Jeff Bennett talks to Maxwell Frost, the first person from Generation Z, that's right, Generation Z, <laughs> elected to Congress. And finally, to all our men and women who serve the nation in uniform today and always, we salute you. We owe you our deepest gratitude. I'm Yami Shalsendor. Good night from Washington.